Are you a COVID expert? Have you become an expert on race? Today on our Love First podcast, we're going to look at the difference between expertise and being an expert specifically through the lens of Scripture. Thank you for joining us for the Love First podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to catalyze courageous conversations to revolutionize the way we love each other. There's an interesting story in John chapter 9 that is both humorous and incredibly confusing. Uh, Jesus is walking with his disciples and they come upon a man born blind. Now, when we think about blindness in our time, we recognize immediately that there is a certain feeling about the loss of sight consistently when people are surveyed and asked of all the five major senses that we recognize, which would be the most difficult to do without consistently, blindness, the loss of sight, is ranked number one. But it had another connotation in Jesus' day. The connotation is summed up in a conversation at the beginning of the story where Jesus' own followers ask him, hey, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because you see, the assumption was that rather than thinking of illness as one silo or category of experience and spiritual life as another silo and category of experience, social and religious life as other categories or silos of experience, it was all meshed into one like a braided rope. So if someone had an illness, if someone was sick, if someone needed a doctor, they weren't just physically ill. Their whole life was an illness. Their whole life represented weakness. Here's a, this is important. Their life represented the presence of evil. There's evil influence. Evil is behind this. And in the case of many illnesses, it came along with the idea of being unclean. Unclean means that you are not fit to participate in society because you carry a contagion. You are a, a, uh, someone that's sick and can make other people sick. So when they ask the question, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind, the assumption is that had people made the right decisions all the way along, had they been faithful and righteous all the way along, this man would not be suffering. So the fact that he is suffering is evidence enough that there's sin back upstream. Jesus pushes back against that. He says, neither. This happened. It's as simple as that. But it does offer us an opportunity to do the will of God and to demonstrate the glory of God. Jesus heals this man, and you would think to yourself that in a small town where a man has been blind from birth, his family's there, everybody knows them, they're members of the local synagogue, 
Everyone knows this person. If he's healed and now he can see, would this not be an occasion for a party? I mean, wouldn't this be an occasion for almost like giving this guy, uh, maybe giving Jesus the keys to the city or something? No, that's not what happens. The religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees, step in and they begin to attack the situation. They attack Jesus. They attack this guy. They attack his family. The next thing you know, threats are being made. Now, the blind fella who can now see, he's just excited, and he never loses his enthusiasm. He's so happy that he can see that the fact that they are attacking him, he begins to interact with them and actually says some humorous things to them. He says things like, you know, I find this interesting. You want to know where the guy is that healed me, but I was blind. So in essence, what he's saying is, you're the one who should know who he is and where he comes from and where to find him. They, they keep pressing him. Who is this guy? And he says, well, I've already told you. So maybe what you want me to do is tell you again so that you can become one of his followers. Well, they eventually erupt. They are furious. And that is where we're going to pick up the story. Then they hurled insults at him, at the man that had been blind. They hurled insults at him and they said, you are this fellow's disciples. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, well, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of a man opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So the day that a man from their home synagogue who was born blind can finally see is the day that he goes, gets thrown out of his home synagogue. The man who can now see. But I'd like you to focus with me on a question that they ask him. How dare you lecture us? You see, the Pharisees, by the time of Jesus, had become experts. In fact, Scripture even describes them using that term. They were experts in the law. They'd got to the point where they believed that they were the pinnacle, that they had kind of arrived at the top of the heap. But if we go back and look at the history of the Pharisees, we would actually have to drift back into a larger context. So we would go back to the 6th century B.C., Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed under the Babylonian conquest, and the people of Israel are taken into captivity. Famously, approximately 70 plus years later, then the first group begins to go back to Jerusalem and Israel, and part of the project is to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, and rebuild the temple. But from the captivity on, their religion is permanently changed. No longer 
even in Second Temple Judaism, even after the temple is restored, no longer is the temple the sole central place for Jewish religious practice. Because what had grown in captivity and continued to expand over the next several centuries is what we know of as the synagogue, the gathering, the sunagoge, the coming together. As best we understand, it required 10 heads of families to start a synagogue. Josephus, the first century historian, who many believe was a Pharisee, we know he exaggerates his numbers, so you got to be careful with Josephus's numbers, but he suggests that in Jerusalem there were as many as 400, 400 of these small gatherings we would call synagogues. If that number is true or not is irrelevant. What it demonstrates for us is how pervasive the synagogues were as a part of the fabric of Jewish religious life. Well, what does that have to do with the Pharisees? Well, the Sadducees, as they came to power, they ruled over the temple and the priestly functions. Many thought of them as the elite. But it was the Pharisees that were embedded in the synagogues. This is where they were reading Torah and interpreting it for daily life. For that reason, the synagogues actually became the center for Jewish religious life. Now, this is essential because it was there that the Pharisees were living among the flock. It's also important to realize that not everyone had a bad attitude toward the Pharisees. Josephus, who, as I mentioned, some believe was a Pharisee, commented in his writings that among the common people, the Pharisees enjoyed goodwill. It's also true that in the New Testament, we have several Pharisees who are actually at minimum sympathetic to the cause of Christianity, but in other cases are fully invested. You might remember in Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel, a noted Pharisee who actually kind of stands in the gap in a sympathetic way when the early Christians were being persecuted. He actually pushes pause and says to their persecutors, you need to really stop and consider whether or not you might be fighting against God when you're fighting against these disciples of Jesus Christ. But think of some other noted Pharisees. What about Nicodemus? He's the one that came to Jesus at night. He's the one in John chapter 7 who raised his hand in defense of Jesus. And he's the one that went with another Pharisee, Joseph of Arimathea, to publicly take the body of Jesus, committing themselves in that way to whatever would come with publicly aligning themselves with Jesus. And they were the two that buried him in Joseph's tomb. I know what some of you are thinking. You're leaving out a very famous Pharisee. Yes, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. He doesn't diminish his role as a Pharisee at all. In fact, he says, I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. I was kind of like the cream of the crop. I was the pace setter. And you might remember that Paul himself gives this testimony. He says, up until this day, I have done Everything I've done in good conscience, and it, it needs to be understood that even when he was persecuting Christians, he thought he was doing the right thing. Now think about that. 
So when you think about what Pharisees lived like, they were among the common people, embedded in common life, interpreting common life, and among them you had people like Gamaliel, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and the man who became the Apostle Paul. The background of the Pharisees kind of is a, is a story that's a little murky, but it seems to arise around the middle of the second century before Christ. They were a reform movement. In fact, if you read the history, they are first understood to be a social reform movement. They believed that what was happening in their faith and among the people was against the will of God. They believed that their leaders had sided with idolatry and were not practicing the faith. They felt like that Israel's heart was being drawn away from pure commitment to God. So they saw that as a reason to step in as a reform movement. Some people have kind of characterized them as a restoration movement, restoring the pure faith of Israel. Now, that was a precarious position to be involved in. In fact, I think it's important to understand it this way. In the beginning, when they were birthed, justifying their actions was not overly difficult. They lived on the edge daily as they confronted the corrupt powers of their day. The threat of death was a lived experience more than a potential hazard. The 24-hour cycle of prayerful preparation pushed them to evaluate their convictions, count the cost of standing for those convictions, and preparing themselves and their families for the losses they would most certainly experience. So in the beginning, they were not so much a school of thought as they were a school of fish, moving in synchronization with the galvanization of their conviction that the corruption that consumed and contaminated their community had to be confronted and called into account. So what it's important to understand is in the beginning, they knew something was wrong, they were convicted that something had to be done, so they, out of, out of their convictions, began to protest the corruption that was going on in their community, and they sought to restore pure-hearted devotion. Now, this is also important. The power structures that they experienced internationally, regionally, and locally had a mixture of Greek and then Roman influence. There were uh, uh, the feelings that what's happening here is that people are compromising with ungodly influences. But their protest was primarily, not always, but primarily local. It was embedded in their conviction that in the midst of such corruption, it was the people of Torah, the covenant people of God, who were to be a light to the world a city on a hill, an outpost for righteousness and judgment, and a witness to the wisdom of God in a world gone mad with sin and a world drunk with power. Their own leaders were the objects of their consternation. Disdain for the occupying forces of foreign powers was expected. This was always part of their lived experience. But this isn't what gave rise to the Pharisees. 
They were not cleaning up the world. They were cleaning their own house. Well, you can imagine. That was met with strong resistance. In the early days of their social reform movement, their restoration movement, they were often at odds with the powers to the point that it brought on their death and their martyrdom. Part of what endeared them to the common people was the fact that they would stand in uncommon ways against oppressive power. That's what made them popular among the people. So what went wrong? What went wrong? If you've got a reform movement, a restoration movement, where everyday people are getting up, praying themselves into a posture of courage, and stepping out the door having counted the cost of the loss they would inevitably experience, how did they become the group we meet in the New Testament? How did they become a group who instead of rejoicing with a blind man from their home church, from their home synagogue, who can now see, they actually stare at him down the slope of their nose and disdainfully say, how dare you lecture us, and they throw him out. How do you go from a reform movement to an oppressive power structure? Well, I mentioned at the beginning that we would consider the difference between expertise and being an expert. One social media guru shared about an experience she had when she was training 40 young students in social media. One of them raised their hand and said, well, how do you become a social media expert? She writes, I paused and I threw the question back of them. Well, how many of you think you are social media experts? Out of a crowd of about 40 that was in her class, three of them raised their hands, though she mentions one of them quite tentatively. So she said, so what makes you a social media expert? I wasn't trying to be mean, but if you're going to tell me you're an expert at anything, you ought to be able to tell me why. What I heard from them was essentially that they use social media actively, perhaps more than their peers. They try th new things themselves, so apparently they are experts. But here's the thing, she writes. I believe there is a huge difference between developing expertise and being an expert. She writes, expertise is what you and I are developing every day. For you, it might be creating a way for business and people to use social media more efficiently, thinking specifically of her profession. It might be continuing to learn as much as you can about public relations and, and social media and networks and new technology and figuring out how to put them into practice for yourself and your clients. Now listen carefully to her definition of expertise. Expertise is a journey. It possibly has a defined starting point. You know, the day, the minute, the moment that you knew that this is what you wanted to learn more about and make your life's work, 
but it does not have an end point. So whether or not one should call oneself an expert has been debated several times. But to me, she writes, being an expert is completely different than developing expertise. An expert is defined not by one's own opinion of one's, himself or herself, but by the opinions and perceptions of others. You're considered an expert when you know more about your industry and business than the majority of your peers do. You're considered an expert when people start turning to you for advice. But simply having an opinion and voicing it extremely loudly does not make you an expert. You can call yourself an expert when you know every little nitty-gritty thing about how your industry works. And yes, that means knowing why it's important for the nuts and bolts to be screwed in at precisely 87 degrees and not 91 degrees, and there's absolutely nothing left for you to learn. And frankly, that's an unlikely state of affairs, isn't it? Developing expertise is a good thing. It's what we should all be trying to do day in and day out. We should be trying new things, learning what works and what doesn't. Not everything will work every time, and that's okay. But becoming experts? That's not what our new professionals should be focusing on, and neither should we. Let's just focus on learning and doing good work. And then, if people start to call us experts, we can be grateful. But it's not something we should demand or expect. And even if we have enough expertise in our area, we'll know that. That's the difference between expert and expertise. You see, the Pharisees had expertise. They studied the law of God. They studied Torah. They studied it for interpretation. They studied the power structures that they lived among. And then they began to compare the power structures to the teaching of God. And it was the use of that expertise that they, around which they began to facilitate their protest and say, hey, the law of God calls for people to live this way. The power structures are leading us in an ungodly way. And it was their expertise that drew them into that protest, which in many instances cost them everything. But it wasn't until they became experts that the movement lost its way. It's a complex question. It's a complicated problem. But perhaps the difference between being an expert and having expertise is humility, and that is what it appears they had lost. Jesus, when he confronts them in Matthew 23, he says, you're not getting it. You travel over land and sea to make converts to your way of thinking, but you end up making them twice the son of hell as you are. What strong words. Why would he use such words? Because earlier in the same chapter, he says, you tie up heavy loads on others, and then you don't lift a finger to try to help them. You see, what is happening in our culture right now is we begin to fashion ourselves as experts. 
We began to suggest that our way of thinking about COVID, our way of thinking about safety, our way of thinking about whether one should wear a mask, whether one should not wear a mask, gets codified into a level of believing we're an expert, so there's no conversation to be had. There's no reason to listen to anyone else because we already know everything that needs to be known. People will quickly say, well, I don't know, I don't know everything. We know what that means. It's not that you need to know everything. It's that you believe that everything necessary is known. That the knowledge you believe you have should be enough to convince others that what you're saying is the only way to consider it. Now, here's the question. What if you're wrong? Let's start there. What if you're wrong? Clearly, in John chapter 9, the Pharisees are wrong. I mean, like they are 100% wrong. They're wrong about Jesus. They're wrong about how they're treating the blind man. And they're wrong about how they're treating his family. So what if you're just wrong about the way that you think about COVID safety? What if you're just wrong about the way that you think about race? What if you're just wrong about the way that you're judging others? You see, one of the problems with being an expert is we, over, we overestimate what we believe we know. That's part of the problem. And when we overestimate the value of what we believe we know, even when we're wrong, no one can convince us that we're wrong. So what if you're wrong? But there's another question. What if you're right, but the way that you're coming across causes other people to close down and not listen to you? What if the way that you bluster into a conversation, what if the way that you uh, speak in such a way that you actually shut other people down? What if the way that you express your opinion makes no room for any other opinion? What if someone can't even give a dissenting question or a nuance? What if someone can't just simply ask a specific question about an exceptional circumstance? So what if you're right, but the way you're going about it is wrong? You see, that's also a problem Jesus confronts with the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, in the great confrontation, Jesus actually says to his disciples, do what they say because what they're saying is coming out of Scripture. Just don't do what they do. So what Jesus is saying is, you're going to have to do double the work with your teachers. You will actually have to overcome the way they live in order to hear what they say. It's Jesus himself in John chapter 12 and verse 49 that says, the Father taught me what to say and how to say it. So the truth of the matter is, when we come across in humility as people who perhaps have developed a level of expertise, it actually makes it easier for other people to listen to your expertise when you bring it across humbly. I'm thinking back to uh, 2011. I was in the hospital in August of 2011. 
I'd had a major surgery and it was supposed to correct a long-standing health problem. My doctor, who is absolutely brilliant and her educational pedigree uh, uh, gives evidence to that, the surgeon, who was equally brilliant and both of them considered in the medical field to be experts, came into my room after a week when the surgery was not working and began to ask me a set of questions. A week later, it's still not working, and they're back in the room. So here are these two doctors, high-performance doctors, respected in the medical community locally in Atlanta and nationally in peer review. My wife and I are sitting there. Both of them, my gastroenterologist and the gastrosurgeon, both looked at Susan and I and said this, we don't know. We don't know why this is happening. Now you might think to yourself, wow, I'll bet that really knocked a hole in your confidence in your doctors. No, for Susan and I, it was the exact opposite. Our confidence in them grew. The surgeon said, we have written up your case. I'm going to submit it to a panel that I will be meeting with. Now think of how our confidence grew. Because now what we understood was, rather than them protecting their reputation as experts, they were hitting the gas in growing in their expertise. They were going to allow my case to grow their expertise. And what that said to me was, okay, you're bringing in more voices, more minds, more eyes on our situation, and together you will grow in your expertise and solve this problem to the best of your ability, which is exactly what they did. So the fact that both of them were considered experts did not stop them from a humble posture that allowed them to grow in their expertise. So I would wonder, do people sense humility in your posture when you talk about your response to COVID, business, society reopening, churches opening, the way you talk about people responding to wearing masks or not wearing masks? Do people sense humility? Do they sense that you're trying to learn? <clears throat> Are you able to say, not only do I not have all the answers, I know that some of the answers that I have probably aren't right. Do people hear that? And what about race? Are you the expert on how everyone should re be responding? One of the protests that I attended in Atlanta, I found something interesting. It was extremely important to this group to disassociate themselves from the Black Lives Matter movement. They made a sharp uh, uh, delineation between not supporting the Black Lives Matter 
movement, but supporting Black Lives Matter. Well, I heard it several times during this situation. I thought about it. I thought about how it was impacting people. I knew that some people would like that delineation. Some people had gone on a Black Lives Matter website. They had read the planks of their political positions, their social positions, and so on, and they had deciphered that they could not support that political ideology. Other people did not like it because they felt like that by slicing down through that, it was a convenient way to say, we will dictate the terms of what it means to support black lives. I thought through that. I thought, well, my guess is you're not going to quickly solve those differences. But I did think of a posture that could help people hear each other. What if someone said something like this? You know, I support the idea of Black Lives Matter, and I realize I have not been supportive. I am complicit in the ongoing propagation of white supremacy and white privilege. I am a part of the problem. On the other hand, I've gone on the website and I've decided that I do not agree with these key points of the Black Lives Matter movement. But you know what? I am also a part of a political party. And I just want to tell you that I've gone on the website of my own political party, and boy, I'll tell you, there's a ton of stuff there I don't agree with. And, my, and, and the leaders of my political party, oh goodness, when I look at their behavior, I hear things that come out of their mouth, I don't support that one ounce. So, you know, it looks to me like all of us who support some form of an institutional approach to political and social reform are all in the same boat. We're going to support some things, and there are other things that we will call out and recognize as ungodly. Now, can you imagine if in your next family conversation, workroom conversation, sidewalk conversation, you said to someone, there are parts of that I don't support, but there are parts of the institutions that I'm already actively a part of and that I defend, that I have done equal investigation, and I realize I don't support that ungodliness either. Now, that may not make you feel good about the fact that someone still does or does not support a movement that is dear to your heart. But how does it change the posture of the conversation when we begin to speak humbly and transparently about the decisions we're making about our own allegiances? You see, the truth is, anyone who believes that the candidate they vote for in a political election actually aligns with everything that they believe, simply put, that's foolish. And that's an undefendable position. I have been voting in elections since I was 18 years old, and that's been a long time. I have never once been able to vote for a candidate where somewhere along the line, I did not have to make peace with the fact 
that there was somehow some a part of their life or some part of their political ideology that I did not agree with. When we are open about this kind of reality, when we're open about these decisions that we're making, it gives us an opportunity to talk across the divide. But it does mean that I might have to retire my expert badge, that I might have to come across in a very different way. So I'd like for us to move to the final moments of our podcast to an example of how Jesus develops his disciples. I'm in Matthew chapter 9, and famously, the Pharisees don't bode well in this conversation. It's beginning in verse 9. Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said to him. And Matthew got up and he followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, Hey, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus heard them. And so he said to them, It is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. You, know, you need to go learn something. Go learn what this means. And Jesus quotes scripture. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What is Jesus saying? I'm a doctor. I'm making a house call. I am here with someone who is sick. And remember the context we gave around the man born blind. The illness in Matthew's life isn't physical. The illness in Matthew's life is spiritual. But Jesus says, I'm here because I'm a doctor. I'm here because this is a patient. And Jesus says, and here's the thing, experts in the law. Go back and learn something. Become students again. I know expertise is important to you, but you've drifted into the realm of believing you're the experts, that you have nothing more to learn. I need you to go back one more time. Go back to Hosea. Go back to Hosea chapter 6 and learn what it means when God says, I desire something that you're not displaying. There's something missing in your life. I want you to go search for that. Learn that. Develop an expertise. So Jesus is the doctor. Matthew is the patient. And Jesus has made a house call. But this conversation is not over. Because Jesus then continues on his way. And Matthew and the other disciples are following him. Jesus comes along and he raises a dead girl. He heals a sick woman. Then he comes upon these blind men. And it starts in verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and they asked, 
And, and he asked them, do you believe I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then Jesus touched their eyes. And according to your faith, he said, let it be done to you. And at that, their sight was restored. Jesus said to them sternly, see to it that no one knows about this. But they went out and they spread the news about him all over the region. And while they were going out, a man who is demon possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Now notice that the blind men come and say, we need your help. Jesus asks, do you believe I can do this? Yes. Then the man who's demon-possessed but can't speak. So you see the integration of the idea of the demon possession, the evil, and the physical manifestation. Jesus heals them, and the people are like, what is happening? But the Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. What are the Pharisees saying? We're the experts. We'll define this moment. We'll name this moment. This guy that you're all excited about, that you think is doing great things, he's, 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 he's demon-possessed. What? What? He raised a dead girl of a synagogue leader, a daughter. He helped a woman who had had an issue of blood that had kept her ostracized from society for 12 years. Everyone starts coming to him. He heals these two blind men. He heals this demon-possessed man. People are coming to Jesus in droves. The people themselves feel hope again. They're excited that change is coming. Listen, that reform is coming. The restoration is coming. And the very party that started out as a reform and restoration movement wants to shut it down. The very party that started out as the freedom movement wants there to be less freedom. Hmm. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, do you remember what Josephus had said about the Pharisees at one time? The common people had a, had a good opinion of the Pharisees that the Pharisees lived among them kind of like shepherds among a flock. But Matthew says, let me tell you what I saw. The people who used to be that way are now the very people that are tying up heavy, heavy burdens on people and refusing to help them. And it's Jesus, Jesus who stepped into those moments and gave hope again. How was it that Jesus could look at the crowds and see one thing and the experts looked at the crowd and saw something else? How could Jesus see a crowd 
People that were restless and struggling and having problems and illnesses, illnesses of the soul, not just illnesses of the body. How could Jesus look at them and see them a certain way and the Pharisees look at them very differently? Matthew says, well, here's what I saw. He looked at them with compassion. You see, when Jesus saw them, he saw them as people. He saw their humanity. He saw them as people made in the image of, of the Father. He saw them as people that are wrapped up in the phrase in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, these people, that he sent me. But the Pharisees, they looked at the people as people to be manipulated, people to be used, people to prop them up as the experts. It's kind of fascinating that some of these movements like the Pharisees that begin with vision, eventually they devolve into something else. And in the case of the Pharisees, what they needed more than anything was a villain. And Jesus began to become that. That's why they said, he's demon-possessed. And you see, when they villainized Jesus, then they could divide the populace. This is what it says in John 9 with the blind man. The people were divided. Does that sound familiar? And when you villainize part of the population, you're igniting the other population, part of the population to garner their vote. And see, this is what experts are looking for, is the affirmation of their position of power. What do people see in Jesus? A shepherd that really cared. Well, then Jesus says to his disciples, and remember Matthew is among them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I want you to add something to your prayer list. This is in John 9, 38. Jesus says, add this to your prayer list. Ask the Lord of harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. You see, Jesus is a doctor. He's a healer. And he's making house calls. But there's so many patients. There's so many people that need help. The descriptions in Scripture is literally, if it was a hospital, the ER is overflowing. There's a line out the door. And so Jesus says to his disciples, I need you to pray about something. We need more doctors. We need more medical care workers. We need help. Does this sound familiar? We need help. We need help. We need help. Pray about it. Pray about it. Pray about it. And there's Matthew. And Matthew knows how important it is. Because when did he meet Jesus? He met Jesus when Jesus made a house call. When Jesus, the great physician, made a house call to Matthew, the patient. 
Matthew knows it's important. He knows what it means to have sickness in his heart that he can't heal on his own. Matthew knows what it means to need a doctor and not know where to find one. So when Matthew begins to see Jesus healing person after person after person in so many ways, holistically healing people, Matthew rejoices because he knows from his own experience what it means to have been lost but now found, dead now alive again, sick but now healed. He knows what it means. But then, chapter 10, so Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal sicknesses and diseases. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. Now, bear in mind, we're reading Matthew. The Holy Spirit, through Matthew, wrote this. So Matthew's telling us, Jesus made a house call. I followed him. I realized his healing power. I knelt and prayed, oh, God, let be done for others what has been done for me. Then out of the blue, he calls us. And then we weren't expecting it, but he designates us in a certain way. And he called us to join him in making house calls. Matthew says, imagine that. Me, the patient, now the doctor. Me, the patient who marveled at the healing of Jesus, but now he commissions me to become a healer. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Don't go among the Gentiles. We know that was coming later. Don't enter any town of the Samaritans. We know that was to come later. But go rather to the lost sheep of Israel, those upon whom Jesus had already modeled compassion as a shepherd. As you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of God has come near. Here's what you do. You ready, Matthew? You heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, and, and notice this at the end of verse 8. Freely you have received freely give. What is he reminding Matthew and all the rest? You're still a patient. I, the doctor, stepped into your life, your sickness, your need. You are healed because of me. And since I've done that for you, you take that posture with others. You become a healer. You become one who looks on others with compassion. Rather than becoming a person who is judging others, rather than becoming a person thriving on division, establishing yourself as the standard, become the person who realizes that what I have gained has come through grace. 
that what is happening in my life is because of the love of God. And because God first loved me, so I will love others. Because God taught me my value, I will now affirm the value of others. Because God elevated my voice, I will elevate the voice of others. Because Jesus, rather than feeding his own ego, emptied himself in order to serve others, I will empty myself in order to serve others. You see, experts thrive on power. People with expertise understand that in their weakness, God is strong. So let's consider Christ's alternative approach. Jesus is the expert, but he's training his disciples in their role. Jesus empties himself so that he can train us not to act like gods, lords, or experts, but to be godly, humbly serving others, thoroughly equipped, disciples growing in expertise, which we could call competence, without losing the core of what makes us disciples, that we are learners. It's in Philippians 2 that we're told to have this attitude that was also in Christ. And it's in Mark 10, 35 to 46, where Jesus says, you know how the ungodly do this. They seek to have power over others. They seek the best seats. They seek to be thought of as teacher in the marketplace. But he says, not so among you. Whoever would be the greatest, let them be the least. Whoever would be first, let them be last. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Over the past several weeks, as we've addressed crucial topics surrounding our response to COVID-19 or surrounding our understanding of God and the church and disabilities and justice, surrounding the gospel, justice, and race. We have had people on our podcast with great expertise, but who modeled astounding humility. They've helped us learn. In the next coming weeks, we have an exciting lineup of special guests that will be joining us. But part of the way that we pray through those guests that we would invite isn't just who has expertise, but who has the humility to draw others into the conversation, to serve and to be a blessing. So what I'm going to ask you to do is imagine yourself like Matthew, where Jesus comes into your life making a house call to heal you. And as a patient, you recognize the wonder of what it means to receive healing from God. But then God doesn't leave you there. He calls you to become a healer, to join him in healing the world. And so the same way that Christ came into your life as a humble healer, you step into the world around you as a humble healer, always remembering that not only are you a doctor, but you're always a patient.
Thank you for joining us for the Love First podcast. We would ask you to like, subscribe, and share. And we'd also ask for you to share with us resources that have helped you develop your posture of humility as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Love first, I know.